This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we report on the 25th annual Spurwink Farm Fly-In and Pancake Breakfast. You'll see why a fly-in can be a great event for pilots, non-pilots, and even people who aren't all that interested in airplanes. And if you want to have some fun, count the number of times you hear the word pancake this episode and send us your result. In the news, airports try to limit passenger volume and one major airline declines to participate. The drastic steps some airlines are taking to try and work through the lost baggage crisis and the investigation into a missed runway crash. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 708 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hello, Max, and everyone around the world. Great to be back here. I was out sick for a while, but mostly recovered now, which is good, though. I mentioned I've, I've got a blocked ear when I went flying today, so it's like, eh, not quite 100% recovered, but getting there. Well, but that's okay, because we're in mono. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so are my ears right now. That's right. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's working at the American Helicopter Museum. He's our aviation historian. Hey, uh, I'm falling rapidly under the weather, it feels like. Um, but I just took my first COVID test in a long time, and it came out negative. But I, I think this weather is finally catching up to all of us. I think it is. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Are you healthy, Micah, or are you also uh, headed in the wrong direction? I'm doing just fine. Good. He's, he's mainly. Doing just great up here. I'm mainly ready. But, mainly healthy. Uh, but no, it. You came up uh, the right weekend because uh, last weekend was beautiful, Max, and 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 this weekend right now, uh, it, while it's cool out, it's still only sixty nine degrees, but the dew point is is uh, sixty seven degrees Fahrenheit or forty degrees Celsius for those of you counting at home. Miserably humid. Did you do that conversion in your head, or did you? Sorry, I I didn't agree with that conversion. You said oh. it's sixty eight Fahrenheit, forty degrees Celsius. 40 20, a, 20 degrees, uh-huh. 20 degrees Celsius. Are you backpedaling here? <laughs> I am backpedaling because I know I said 40 and I meant to say 20. <laughs> and that happens to be the only conversion I know in my head, that 68 equals 20. Uh, and 40 is 104, so <laughs> I knew that yeah. wasn't right. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking about what's happening in London, those poor guys over there in the UK yep. right now. Yeah, that's close to 40. Yeah, serious heat wave over there. Uh, we'll mention uh, Rob Mark is uh, is off this episode, so hopefully we'll see him next week. It's just us guys, and we're going to kick it off with some of the aviation news from the past week. You guys ready? Ready from the West. Ready from Delaware. Been mainly ready all night. Our first story comes from cityam.com. This is Airlines to Stop Selling Tickets as Heathrow Puts 100,000 Daily Passenger Cap. Well, we've seen this. Uh, air- airports are experiencing some really significant operational 
problems. It's a result of several things. The usual litany these days, I guess, staff shortages, increased travel. And this has seriously impacted the baggage processing. There are thousands of bags piled up at some airports. Well, to try to uh, deal with this issue through September 11th, 2022, London Heathrow wants to limit the number of departing customers to 100,000 per day. Uh, To put it in context, their pre-pandemic levels were between 110,000 and 125,000 daily departing customers. So this uh, cap, this desired cap of 100,000 is is less than the pre-pandemic levels. Uh, This is kind of a drastic thing. I'm not aware of any airport that's ever said we want to limit the number of passengers in this way. Yeah, usually airports will limit the number of flights and they may uh, put caps on, you know, total flights coming into it. But usually that's, you know, regulated over a long period of time because of a, you know, a severe capacity restraint. I don't think we've ever seen something like this where an airport basically is saying, you know, we're having staffing problems. So we, we want you to help solve our staffing problems by having fewer people come through our airport. Yeah, it's not going over well in all quarters. There's a quote here from Willie Walsh, who's the head of International Air Transport Association, IATA. He says, to tell airlines to stop selling, what a ridiculous thing for an airport to say to an airline. It's not just Heathrow, though. Amsterdam's Schiphol has capped daily passengers to 67,500 in July. Um, That goes up to 73,000 in August, but they've also had uh, serious problems with baggage backing up. Yeah, those are the same numbers. 100,000, according to the article, is the same number of passengers that Heathrow had back in 2016. That's an incredibly long time ago. Passengers have built up since then, and for Heathrow to do that has uh, really upset a number of airlines, which sort of brings us to the next story, because some airlines are cooperating, but Others aren't, and I think for good reason, based on on what it's saying. Do you want to you want to talk about that, Max? Reuters says that Emirates has announced that they won't agree to this passenger limitation at Heathrow, and they plan to continue operating their six daily A three eighty flights to the airport. Now, Emirates said that Heathrow gave them just thirty six hours to reduce capacity on their daily flights. Uh, the airline said that they're there being Heathrow. Their communication not only dictated the specific flights on which we should throw out paying passengers, but also threatened legal action for noncompliance. And in a statement, they said, until further notice, Emirates plans to operate as scheduled to and from Heathrow. Well, they have a good point because the article talks about that they have a, a sep- uh, complete, the parent company of Emirates is uh, Donata, I guess. And they provide their own ground handling and catering at Heathrow and that that organization was perfectly capable of supporting all the numbers and all the passengers that Emirates brings. So basically what Emirates is saying to Heathrow is, look, it's your issue. We're handling our ground handling. We're handling our our baggage. We're handling our catering. You just have to process the passengers through security. You need to fix that because we're not asking you for anything else. It's kind of a situation, it seems, where... Uh, there really are multiple factors at play here, I think, uh, but it's easiest just to point fingers and to uh, you know look to the other 
other parts of the process as either uh, causing the problem or as responsible for dealing with the problem. But, I mean, I think it really does involve a lot of factors. And I think the parties need to come together and and get a good passenger-friendly solution. I don't remember if we covered this before, um, but Iceland Air is handling it in their own unique way. They are flying on every flight their own baggage handlers along over to Heathrow to take care of their own baggage because of all the issues that are going on. Now, I think that's really interesting because the baggage handlers that are cleared to work in the airport grounds in Iceland, are they cleared to work in Heathrow? I guess they must be. But for an airline to say, we're going to transport our own people because you can't do it, I think... Yeah, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on, but it all seems to be going in the same direction. Well, this would be a good time for the airlines to say, so uh, how much are we being charged per gate per day at Heathrow? <laughs> uh, yes, we'll be we'll be happy to scale back, and here's the penalty. You know, here's here's how much you're going to lose in income because you are not providing the services that you're contracted uh, to provide. Uh, but there was a, a yet another ping in this ping-pong match between Heathrow and Emirates, and I saw that uh, Heathrow came out a, a day or so later and basically said, Oh, Emirates is putting profits ahead of safety by, you know, doing this. And I just thought that what a ridiculous pissing match going on between these two. And I, I hope it doesn't damage the relationship. I'm sure the, the danger is that, uh, you know, Emirates continues to push their case and the, uh, the airport might continue to be, um, what can I say, uh, carry out some retribution in subtle ways uh, in the future, which would be really sad to see that relationship uh, damaged. Uh, frankly, this is probably the kinds of things that these uh, the, the airports and the uh, airlines should be negotiating over the table as opposed to you know putting out demands for each other. Or they should take it to court, where, as we all know, it'll take a year to resolve. <laughs> but, but, but at least I'll get a resolution. There are all kinds of crazy things going on here, and in the end, they all impact the passengers, you know, the, the customers, the, the flying public. Uh, we have an article from ZDNet, and, and amongst some other things, it points out that there was a case where one passenger even bought a ticket. He bought a ticket himself to Dublin Airport so he could go look for his lost baggage. Now, that's a ridiculous situation. I mean, it's bad enough that so much baggage is in the system circulating who knows where but for someone to uh, you know buy a ticket to an airport to go try to find their own baggage is just is just crazy but iceland air's uh, solution what are you holding up there micah it says air tag an air tag that's oh that's the apple air tag yes yes um we are we have talked about this in the past as being a a possible solution. Well, not a solution, but uh, an aid for passengers. If you put an air t- Apple Air tag in your luggage, um, you, uh, you you have the ability to to track where it is, uh, at least to a certain extent. And to be able to deal with the airline when you fly to Dublin and they say, oh, no, no, it's not here. You can say, oh, yes, it is. Yeah, right here. I can tell you exactly where it is. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's, in, in Iceland Air's I mean, it's got to be a, quite an expense to start shipping baggage handlers around on flights. Now, I think they're doing this uh, specifically to flights to uh, Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, where where they note that at least at one point, 16,000 pieces of unclaimed luggage were there. Uh, just... Uh, just crazy. And uh, there's a quote in this CDNet article on, uh, or from Iceland Air's information officer, and he says, we'll have to see how it develops and whether we 
carry this on and maybe even to other destinations. Uh, he says, uh, we're trying to find ways to reduce the effects of these delays and minimize disruption to the journeys of our passengers. But, you know, what a great move on the part of Iceland there to uh, take this drastic action um, for the benefit of their customers. And I keep reading all kinds of horror stories about people with luggage. There was a story of a woman who purposely uh, was uh, didn't check her luggage. It was going to be carry-on. She got to the uh, plane. There was no space. They forced her to check it. And then, as I recall, she was deboarded from the airplane, but they wouldn't deboard her luggage. And so she, the luggage went on to the destination. I also read about a family of four who traveled around Europe for 17 days on vacation with no luggage for that entire 17 days. Uh, and you were talking about finger pointing. There's a lot of finger pointing going on in the U.S. between the FAA and our domestic airlines, uh, talking about where the problems are here in the U.S. The airlines are pointing to understaffing at uh, the FAA. The FAA says, well, no, we've got enough people, though it seems in some areas, perhaps down in Florida, in particular Jacksonville's uh, center, that there might be a little bit of staffing shortage. So, yeah, the days of organizations working together collaboratively to solve problems seems to be a little bit behind us. Right now, it's kind of the finger pointing. And man, we got to get beyond that. We got to get people to start working with each other again to to fix these problems because we have never seen air travel as screwed up as it is right now. Mm, yeah, not in not in my memory. Yeah, the business sector is taking the same uh, position as uh, as politicians these days. Nobody <laughs> wants to work together. Yeah, that's not good. But you know, you, you said uh, Iceland went for a unique and very expensive solution. So did Delta. And talk about doing something unique and expensive for the benefit and customers of customer service. That's right. Delta Airlines responded to this huge volume of lost luggage at London Heathrow by flying an empty A330 to go there and fly the bags back home. Just incredible. They flew them in the pa- you know in the baggage compartments in the in the baggage bins, not in the passenger. Uh, cabins, so it wasn't a a plane with with all the luggage stuffed in the seats and all. They, they they stored it where they would have otherwise. But there were no passengers on the on the plane. I understand. Uh, and you know what was the expense of doing that? Flying an A three thirty to Heathrow and then back home. Uh, just. Just and case. and packaged a thousand pieces of stranded luggage is what it says a thousand pieces that's why they couldn't put any passengers on it you know <laughs> there're usually about 200 passengers on there so what is there maybe 400 bags plus stuff but a thousand bags can you imagine it's it's totally crazy you know we haven't talked about the one solution that i really think people will start to moving toward uh, my in-laws used to do this years ago they were snowbirds they lived in new york city and they would head down to florida in the in the winter time they would fedex their luggage ahead of time nice. and it you know it always got there and I think that if passengers are really serious about having their bags available on their vacation, FedEx the luggage. It's just going to be a more reliable solution, I think. Yeah. You know, I don't know, Max, because FedEx used to be what it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. But have you ordered anything these days and you have a promised delivery of the next day or two days later and it shows up a week later? Who knows? Yeah, I agree. I actually did have uh, an item for the ver- first time ever was lost by them and they were, you know, they tracked it and kind of found where it disappeared. And it was like, yeah, it just kind of disappeared off a shipping dock somewhere. So yeah, I think everybody is a little bit more challenged these days, but uh, I I think their service is still better than what the airlines are doing with bags these days. Hmm. 
I agree. And it, there's a big impact to business travelers as well. I mean, for for leisure travelers, your baggage doesn't show up. Okay, your clothes, you know, hopefully you've got your medications and things like that with you. Um, so it can be terribly inconvenient, but maybe maybe not tragic. Uh, for a business traveler, you know, if you've got the you know the materials that you need to uh, have the the meetings with your customers or whoever you're going to to see, uh, you know, and that doesn't show up. That's a that's a big problem. I know when I was doing that sort of thing, depending on the sensitivity of what it was, but uh, I would I would always be sure to carry things in you know multiple formats and multiple lo- locations, so that if my bag didn't make it, well, the presentations that I was going to give, for example, you know, weren't lost. You know, forever there would be a, a backup. And Max, as you say, uh, yeah, you, using FedEx as uh, you know part of your strategy to make sure that you get the stuff you need where you need it. Yeah, that that's a viable option, I think. And I was just kind of thinking. We've talked in the past about how the European Union has been trying to drive people from airlines onto the trains as part of their carbon neutral policy for the future. Boy, if anything is going to get people on trains, I would think this summer of disaster with with luggage would do it. If I were contemplating traveling between countries in Europe, the trains are so nice and enjoyable. I mean, I can't imagine why anybody would put up with the airlines with what's going on. I mean, I would, I would, if I were in Europe traveling, I would definitely be on a train. Now, here in the U.S., we don't have quite the same train network that they have in U.S. in, in Europe, where virtually every town of any size is, is fully interconnected. Uh, but, you know, that's a, a solution for, for some city pairs here in the U.S. as well. Yeah. You know what the scariest part about this whole story is, really, when it comes down to it? It's a story that will not die. It's the tanker story. It's a 737 Max story. We've been talking about this story solidly in one way or another for the past, what, three, four weeks, maybe six weeks? And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And who knows when or if it ever will. Yeah. There's some real leadership that's needed here, I think, to to pull this together. And it's it's not that we're down on airlines for for certain. I mean, we want we want the airlines to be successful. We want to have a, you know, a viable and, you know, robust transportation system that works for everybody. So it's not that we're, you know, down on commercial aviation or anything. Uh, we want them to be successful. But yeah, it this has got to be the, you know, as you said, this has got to be the, you know, the the low point um, at least for as, as many years as I can remember. And that's that's unfortunate. We want to get out of this. Well, I think an important thing is I want listeners to know what's going on so that they don't find themselves in these situations. Uh, so if you're listening now and you've got a trip planned, you might just think about what are some of the alternatives available. Now, granted, uh, the situation doesn't seem to be bad here in the U.S., uh, but people should just be aware. It's not business as usual flying with airlines these days. No, certainly not. All right, moving off of that topic uh, to something uh, different from the Press Herald. Uh, this is titled "Pilots Failed." To... How do you pronounce this uh, this place, Micah? Presque Isle. Presque Isle. All right. Well, they failed to see the runway there in 2019, and the result was well, not ideal. Now, Presque Isle is at the northern tip of Maine in Aroostook County, and uh, it's an airport that is uh, supported by, I 
can't remember what does the FAA call it that where they uh, they they offer funding to five airlines actually fly into the uh, into the airport. I can't remember that specific program, and Presque Isle is one of those airports, and and they have uh, commuter jets that that fly in there pretty regularly. The uh, if I were to drive the Presque Isle from Portland, it would be about a six hour drive. It's equidistant. I'm equidistant between Presque Isle and New York City. Uh, it's that far away and that far north. Um, so, uh, and there was uh, definitely an issue back in March of 2019 when a, uh, a United Express jet uh, came down and, uh, well, missed the runway. Um, there was a location signal that wasn't working and they were 200 feet off the runway and into a snowbank. And I guess you talked about this recently with Rob on, uh, on, on, on the show, Max. No, we didn't talk about it on the show. We talked about it on the phone. We were just kind of catching up with each other. And we had been swapping interesting accident stories with each other. And this was one of two airline accidents that we swapped and we were discussing. And you know, candidly, this is something that Rob and I just do with each other from time to time because we're interested in this stuff. So it's not necessarily, you know, something that ends up on a show. It's just conversation because we're both interested in, you know, some of these things that happen. By the way, I looked it up. Uh, you're, the program you're referring to is the Essential Air Service, which guarantees small communities in the U.S. can be served by uh, by the airlines. Uh, but, you know, Rob used to be an airline pilot. Uh, I have never been, but, you know, certainly have uh, flown a lot of instruments, taught a lot of instruments. And it was just fascinating to see uh, how this could have evolved. Rob and I talked about it, and a couple of the key things that came out of it was that, you know, there were there were two attempts at landing, and, the you know, the, the visibility was poor. On the first attempt, the uh, pilots came in in uh, this 50-seat uh, Embraer 145, and they didn't really realize it, but they were coming in not straight into the runway, but at a bit of an angle because the ILS had been compromised by snow that was piled up in front of the localizer antennas, which are at the far end of the runway. So that was causing the signal to uh, you know, basically uh, be shifted so that it wasn't uh, straight down the runway. And when they uh, came in, and they basically saw a structure, uh, which was an antenna structure, which kind of confused them because it shouldn't be there, and they didn't really see the runway. Uh, the uh, ground crew said that the runway was about 25% visible. They'd been plowing the snow, and so I guess the blacktop was showing through in about a quarter of the uh, the spaces. But they went around, which makes total sense since they didn't see the runway. And then they came around the, uh, the second time, and the... Uh, I believe it was the co-pilot flying, and the captain told the co-pilot to stay on the instruments uh, even as they went below minimums, which is pretty unusual. You know, typically, uh, the, the person flying the instruments is going to look up and land, uh, and so it was pretty unusual that the the pilot, who was the captain, was fairly low time, told the, the you know, co-pilot to stay on the instruments as they descended through the minimums. And then there came a point where uh, the captain basically said, okay, we can land now. And the co-pilot looked up. And frankly, neither of them really saw the runway. Uh, but they went ahead and landed <laughs> in the snow adjacent to the runway. So I don't recall having heard of an airplane landing parallel to the runway before. Usually you have the runway in sight, you land on the runway. These people kind of saw a whiteout environment and said, let's go for it, which made no sense whatsoever. Now, going back through the captain's training, 
she had had a number of, um, uh, I guess, uh, failures in, in the past as, uh, while upgrading to, to different you know, parts and so on. Uh, so it really looks like a you know, kind of a judgment issue in the part of the captain to you know, basically first tell the first officer to uh, keep, keep you know, his head down uh, throughout the, uh, the landing until they were just ready to touch down. And then for both of them to basically continue a landing when they did not see the runway. Uh, after that accident, uh, the, uh, they had inspected the localizer antennas and basically they found that snow was coming up to within two feet of the antennas. So they cleared all that out and voila, the, uh, the localizer now worked properly. Uh, so it was just fascinating that those kinds of weather conditions could, could lead to this problem and that the pilots would have been, you know, sucked in by it. Now, as I recall, there were also this, uh, bad localizer signal had been experienced previously by other pilots uh, coming in, but none of them reported it. So they're just this, there was just failure upon failure upon failure, which is really what, what made this so fascinating. But that's typical. I mean, most accidents, there's almost never just kind of one thing that was a problem. Usually it's, you know, a compounding of errors, you know, at least three or more problems that all happen to conspire to, uh, to create an accident. Yeah. But I had another question about that, Max, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but it also says that the, the FAA received a report about it, but because there wasn't the cooperation of a second report, they didn't do any kind of investigation into it. You know, that is kind of interesting. Uh, I mean, I get that they like to, in general, have two reports, but to not note them it as being you know, a suspect or something like that, that's pretty bizarre that they would just let people continue to fly this without at least flagging that they've had this first report. So, yeah, pretty pretty poor system. Yeah, I, I guess my question or one of my questions would be, was the process followed by all who participated in this, you know, the pilots, the airport and all? Or is it a deficiency or a set of deficiencies in the process? I mean, if you're at an airport, if you're operating an airport in snow country, yeah, you would think that there would be a process to make sure that this uh, equipment was kept clear of snow uh, and to know when you need to do that. Did they not have that process or did, did they have the process but they didn't follow it? Or, you know, what's the situation? So I guess lots of lots of questions, but... Max, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's almost always this cascading uh, sequence of occurrences that brings together something like this. I guess the uh, the aircraft, the Embraer in this case, had, uh, I think, 31 passengers and crew. And although it landed in the snow, went through the snow, I think uh, the landing gear was uh, torn back or there was some damage like that. But thankfully, uh, apparently only three, uh, three on board suffered minor injuries. Could have been much worse. And that's actually remarkable. Think about the number of uh, accidents you've heard of where a jet <laughs> that lands off runway and everyone survives. I mean, obviously, the miracle on the Hudson is probably one of the best-known examples, but there are very few of those. I remember there was a Japan Airlines jet that landed in the water in 1968 in uh, San Francisco Bay, came up short of the runway. Uh, but, you know, in general, when jets land off the airport, people die. So that's pretty remarkable that everyone survived. Oh, actually, there's there's one final question about this story that we haven't raised, which and I I I, I would feel remiss if I didn't bring it up. Uh, Micah, maybe you can help us here. How good is the train service to Prescott? Because I'm thinking that might be a good alternative. <laughs> 
None. There, 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 there's, there's no train service in Maine uh, beyond, uh, I believe it's Brunswick, which is okay. just north of Freeport. And I've been to Brunswick. Brunswick Landing. I'm heading there on Wednesday, but we'll talk about that later. Good. This past weekend was the uh, Spurwink fly-in uh, in, in Maine, fly-in and pancake breakfast. Uh, we'd been talking about this, and of course, as you uh, probably know, Micah was there, I, I was there as well, and uh, a, a bunch of other folks that we uh, know very well, and also some folks who turned into new friends. Uh, Micah, it was a great, uh, a great event, and um, we have some interviews that we recorded while we were there. But anything else you want to sort of kick this off with, Micah, before we launch into those? Uh, yeah, I think I, we need to say that we both know, everybody else here knows, and all our listeners know, we've been raving about this event for well over a year now and, and raving about what happened last week, that both last week and this week. But um, it's really all true. <laughs> all the great things we say, it's just an amazing event. And we'll, we'll talk more about it. Uh, I got there a little before you. And I think the first interview that we're going to start with is uh, everything was empty. There were only two planes down. And one of them was uh, a rather spectacular aircraft I'd never seen before, a, a BD-5. That's right. A micro little home-built airplane. So uh, let's learn more about that. It's your main man, Micah, here at the Spurwink Farm Pancake Breakfast and Fly-In. And yes, it's 7.30 in the morning, and yes, anybody that knows me knows that it's very unusual for me to be awake at this time. Normally, I'm going to sleep. But nonetheless, I am here. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous day. Max is here, too. He's going to be over here in just a minute. And I'm standing in front of a beautiful BD-5, and we should have a picture of it. And I'm here with the owner, Fred Wilcoxon, who built it from scratch, and Fred... Tell me a little bit about, first, what made you decide to build this gorgeous little jet fighter, practically? Well, it was uh, back in the 70s when it first came out. Uh, it was very reasonable price-wise. And uh, you could do it with common hand tools, supposedly, is the way it was advertised. And uh, we later found out that it, not everybody has milling machines or lathes in their garage. But uh, it's uh, very challenging and uh, it was. It's a very well-built plane. I mean, it's uh, fully aerobatic, um, and for the price of it, it was uh, reasonable at the time. Now, did you build it with the chapter, or did you build it on your own? Or I, I, I built the airplane on, on my own. I was in the Navy at the time, and I was a jet engine mechanic, and I used my mechanical skills to actually build the airplane. And it, uh, I started the process back in 1975. Wow, started in 75, and how long did it take? When did you have it complete? Uh, I finished this one up uh, just two years ago, <clears throat> and I've still got another one in my garage that I'm making modifications for it, putting a bigger motor in it, and uh, it's still under construction. So, Now, you said you were a jet engine mechanic, and when you look at this, just, you know, for the average person who's not really an aviation enthusiast would say, wow, look at that little jet, but it's a, a piston engine pusher. Tell us a little bit about the engine and how you get it in there, because you can't even, it looks like you can't even see it there. You wouldn't know where to look. Right. The engine is a Zenoa. It's a Japanese uh, three-cylinder, 75-horsepower engine. 
that was one of Jim Bede's uh, biggest fallbacks was finding an engine for it to produce between 65 and 75 horsepower and be light enough and be small enough to where it could fit in the airplane. The engine actually sits just behind the pilot. Uh, that's what basically killed the BD-5 was not having an engine for the aircraft. Uh, they went with the Hearth engine for a while. It had a harmonics and it was uh, splitting the crankshafts. And then they came out with the Zenoa and then there was a big political ruha with uh, Japan over the engine getting it shipped into the United States. But uh, there's been many engines tried, and uh, this is one of the engines that's persevered. Now, you said you're working on a second one. Do you have the same engine for that, or are you working with a different engine? No, I'm working with a different engine. That's going to be what they call a turboprop. It's going to run a Solar uh, Chinook APU helicopter engine in it. Wow, so I would imagine that would be a bit more powerful? No, it's about the same. Uh, it's a 75 horsepower, and um, but it you get the the reliability of the jet engine and um, it's a pretty good setup i'm fixing to go down to fort pierce and pick up one uh, that a gentleman was building and uh, sold it due to a divorce and uh, the guy that bought it wound up getting killed in a motorcycle accident and his father donated it back to the jim bead foundation and jim bead jr uh, has basically got a hold of me and wanted me to finish it get it flying for him so now, you're a pretty big guy. We're about the same height, although I probably have 100 pounds on you because you're, you're built very well. But I can't imagine, in terms of your height, how do you fit in it? So how does it fly and how comfortable is it? It's, uh, you fit in it very carefully. You sit in a semi-reclined position, and about 6'2", 6'3", is about the maximum height that you can have in the airplane just due to legroom because your feet actually go pretty much all the way to the nose of the airplane. And... Um, it's, it's actually a very comfortable to fly. Uh, it's a side stick control, uh, throttles on the left with, along with the trim and the flaps, and then the, uh, the pitch control is on the right-hand side. And how does it handle? I mean, obviously you've flown other aircraft. How alert, I suppose, do you have to be compared to when you're flying in a 172 or something like that? Uh, it's, it was originally billed that uh, a low-time pilot could fly it, we really don't recommend a low-time pilot trying to fly it because it is very touchy. Uh, it is, uh, with the longer wings, it's not as touchy. Um, they have a shorter wing, a 17-foot jet wing that you can put on it. And uh, it's, it, it's uh, very pitch-sensitive uh, because it's a pusher prop. Uh, it's very roll-sensitive. It's fully aerobatic. So um, it flies nice. It really does. I mean, you have to know what you're doing. You can't be a... Uh, a rookie pilot, so so to speak. So, and are you comfortable doing aerobatics in it? Something oh, yeah. you've done? Oh yeah, very very much so. It, it flies very nice. Uh, like I said, it's fully aerobatic. Uh, you can do rolls, you can do spins, you can do loops. It, for most of our people aren't aware that this has a gasoline engine in it, which runs carburetors. It's not fuel injected, but you can actually fly it inverted for a short period of time with carburetors, and it won't fuel starve the engine. Really? You don't have to keep it in a 1G roll? No. No, it's it's pretty amazing. They're, the carburetors are built by Makuni, and uh, it was one of their design features when they sold the engine to Jim Bead. Unbelievable. What else should I be asking you about it? Obviously, I'm not an expert on the aircraft. What else should, should our listeners know? Uh, it's the most fun you'll ever have with your clothes on. I love it. 
Jim, thank you so much for, for talking to us. Really appreciate it, and welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Good. Enjoy. Now, we'll have a picture of this in the show notes, so if you're not familiar with the, the Bede BD-5, uh, you can see that in the show notes. It's it's a micro airplane. I mean, it's about as small an airplane as you could possibly build. I'm so excited to see uh, that you uh, you guys got up close to one and got to talk with an owner. I still remember in the 1970s, it was probably the early 70s, attending an air show at the uh, Chemung County Airport for Elmira, New York. And there was a BD-5 that uh, flew in that air show. And I think it was the, the 5J version. Because uh, I distinctly remember that it was jet powered, and boy, that really captured everybody's attention. And so, as a teenager, I just looked at that, and I think we all thought, "Wow, I want one of those." So it's certainly an iconic aircraft from from that time period. Uh, certainly, it uh, captured everybody's imagination, and it was definitely not for low time pilots to fly. And you know, one of the things that was amazing about it, Max and I were there when uh, it was being torn down. It was trucked in or trailered in, and it snaps apart. I mean, the the wings pop right off like a, like like you're building a Lego. It's just unbelievable. Now, when I asked him, I said, "Did it go together just as quickly?" He said, "No, it took a little more time." But <laughs> but nonetheless, it was just unreal how quickly it would get packed right back up in the trailer. And one of the really cool things about it, a, a uh, fly-in like this, is that the time he spent talking to us and explaining uh, the airplane to us is really not because we were from a podcast and we had a microphone and, uh, you know, we were, we were doing an interview. At an event like this, a, a guy like that will, will spend that much time with anybody of, of any age, of any uh, level of knowledge or sophistication. All of these uh, pilots, all of these aircraft owners at an event like this, at a fly-in like this, will just spend a lot of time with you. And it's, it's one of the really amazing things about fly-ins like this yeah and one of the i love the way that they ended up displaying this aircraft it was one of the first ones to come in and and you know we were there very early but parked right next to it the, the bd5 was the the newest looking aircraft of the bunch that flew in but parked right next to it is an old champ very very old completely restored looked like it just came off the assembly line and yeah. when you see the photo in the, in, in in the show notes you'll see that's just the kind of thing. And again, this was very early on. They were the only two aircraft there. A lot more came in later. But that's the kind of thing you see when you get to a fly-in. It's unbelievable. And each owner was equally proud of their aircraft. It certainly had a right to be so. Now, we also talked with Douglas Corgan. He is uh, an ATC guy. And he was interested in aviation as just a young kid. And he's got kind of a fun story. So we captured that. One of the great things about coming to a fly-in is you meet all kinds of interesting people, uh, unexpectedly often. And uh, we're sitting here eating our pancakes, and uh, we're speaking with an air traffic controller. Doug Corrigan. Doug, um, I understand that uh, you've been a a fan of aviation since uh, a very young age. Yeah, since I was 10, uh, I've been kind of pursuing air traffic control, and... uh, it's been over about forty-seven years now. I've been doing it for I did, I've been doing it for forty. So, and you used to hang out at the airport. Yeah, at Logan Airport and uh, other airports around Boston when I was a kid. And uh, used to I used to one day I was riding the subway when I was ten by myself, which my mother allowed me to do, which is unheard of today. But 
And uh, she always said, don't leave the stations. And so one day I came out of uh, Maverick Station on the Blue Line, and the next stop was the airport. And uh, I just decided that I was going to get off the train and go check the airport out. And I was wandering around the airport. This is back in 1975, and uh, the new air traffic control tower had just been built. And there used to be an observation deck on the 16th floor, and somehow I found my way up there. And uh, there were two speakers piped into the control tower. And so there I was, suddenly 10 years old, overlooking an airport, listening to these air traffic controllers. And I just knew instantaneously that that's what I was going to do. It was pretty obvious. I just I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get enough. And it was in February vacation, and I came back home that day, and I didn't tell my mother. And then I went back every day during February vacation. And uh, finally I had to tell her what I was doing. And so, yeah, that was 1975. Was she upset that you were uh, off on all these adventures? No, I think she, you know, she grew up in the 40s and, and rode the subway herself, so she had some sort of sense of, it was still safe back then, and so I told her what I was doing, and she continued to allow me to do it, and so every weekend and every summer vacation, every day I spent out at Logan Airport. So did you ever consider a, a different kind of a career, or was this always a focus all throughout school? Nothing, nothing at all. Either I was going to get a scholarship to play baseball, which was pretty pretty slim but this was always it i, I knew it from uh, from that day and uh and i've been doing it ever since so i got lucky i got really fortunate so how about training or education what was your path to becoming a controller well in 1981 i was a i was a senior in high school and the the, the best thing that could have happened for me which was very sad for a lot of people was ronald reagan fired 11,000 air traffic controllers and and uh, I quit, they, they filled those slots with a lot of military people. And, and fortunately, um, you know, I passed the military entrance exam, and the Navy was very happy to have me as an air traffic controller. So I got, a, I got really fortunate the timing of it. And uh, I spent eight years in the Navy on aircraft carriers and up in, in uh, stationed up in Brunswick, Maine. And so I got a lot of training, and, uh, and so I, got, I just got really fortunate timing-wise. And where are you working now? Uh, I work out of the Portland Jetport. I'm uh, currently uh, rewriting their kind of training programs, kind of updating it, which is something I've done over the last 10 years. And, uh, and then I, I periodically, you know, will get back into working airplanes. Uh, I might be heading down to Martha's Vineyard here shortly, and uh, which I've got, uh, that was my first civilian job was uh, Martha's Vineyard, which I've been off and on for about 30 years. I've been doing, going down there and helping out. And is this your uh, first year here to the Spurwing Farm fly-in? Yeah, this is my first experience. I heard about it, and um, I live on a street where there's a lot of little kids, and I just thought it'd be great to, to tell them. And so I, this is the first time I've ever been here. It's fabulous. And some of, the, you know, some of the controllers are here doing their thing. And so, yeah, this is a great, beautiful day. It is a fantastic day, and we're watching the airplanes come in. It's still early in the, in, relatively early in the morning, so there are a lot, of, a lot more planes to, uh, to arrive and uh, it's, it's always a great event. This is my second year here. And, you know, once you come to something like this, uh, you, you know, you just, you just want to keep coming back. So it's great. I'm sure it'll be the same with you. Well, it's, it's, what's great is, uh, you know, back when I was a kid, it was very easy. You had, you had very easy access to observe and be part of airplanes and aviation. And that's kind of changed over the last 20 years. You know, a lot of restrictions and, you know, no more observation decks. And so this is just a great way to allow kids to get close to airplanes, touch them, climb in them, and then maybe get the bug. Yes, for sure. All right, well, thanks for speaking with us. Hope you have a terrific rest yeah. of the day. Yeah. Thanks. Have a great day. That's for you. 
Great that he mentioned the kids because that's absolutely when people get interested in aviation. In fact, I just said in a recent uh, uh, podcast that my unwritten rule is you have to wave at the kids because, you know, when they're 10, they get excited and they are the next generation of pilots and air traffic controllers and mechanics. So fantastic that, uh, you know, he invited a bunch of kids to come over. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And you'll hear us uh, mention this uh, coming up, but uh, let's bring it up now that the uh, the proximity you have to the airplanes is is just something that there's very few opportunities to uh, experience elsewhere and it's not just the, the the planes that have landed and are parked which you can obviously walk up to and walk around and so forth but just how close you are to the uh, you know this grass field this grass airfield this grass strip uh, is is just really remarkable and that particular interview is sort of an example of the sort of camaraderie that goes on at this particular fly-in. We were sitting there having breakfast, you know, it, you you and me and Linda, uh, Max, and, and, and you know, you were wearing your Airplane Geeks uh, podcast uh, T-shirt, and this person sitting across from you said, what's that? And we told her, and she said, oh, you should interview him. And he was <laughs> sitting right next to you. And so there we went, you know, and, 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 and look – Look at that kind of information, how you, you meet somebody who, who's rewriting the manuals for, for the Portland Jet Board. It's unbelievable. You know, as he was talking and he, he said Spurwink Farms, I have to ask you, Micah, how does anybody say that without just giggling? I mean, it's such, such a funny <laughs> sounding word. I mean, it's almost like saying Djibouti. You know, there's some places you say the name, you just have to laugh. Spurwink Farms. I mean, what a funny name. Yeah. Spurwink River. I think that's what it's all about. But anyway. I don't know. It sounds like Bullwinkle or something. You know? uh, it's just, it's just a great name. Uh, it's a good name for the place because it, it really is an, you know, an idyllic, idyllic setting. It's uh, uh, beautiful. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, but you know, we met uh, one of our listeners, um, JD, who turns out to be a really cool guy, and so uh, we spoke with him, and you can listen to that right now. J.D. is a listener who flew up for the event from New Jersey, I think. Correct. And what did you fly up in? I flew up in a Cessna Cardinal, a Cessna 177B. Have you had that for a long time? Ten years. Ten years. Isn't that about the time you started listening to Airplane Geeks? Uh, That is correct. Uh, You guys were actually part of the reason that I ended up getting an airplane. You guys and another podcast uh, convinced me to go uh, and make the plunge into airplane ownership. It's okay. You can tell us what the other podcast is. We want to know. Uh, the other one was the... Oh, you put me on a spot here. You did. You put him on the spot. That's okay. You'll, you'll think of it. You'll think of it. But the other thing i got to tell you, and I'm going to tell our listeners, I have never seen a Cardinal, and I have never been in one. So I've got to tell you, after this interview, we're walking over to your plane. Absolutely. Love to have you. So that's, uh, that's what you fly, but not as part of your day job. That's correct. Uh, I'm a retired military pilot. I flew C-141s and C-5s and T-37s and T-38s. And uh, for my day job, I fly a 777 for a major cargo company. And hey, what kind of routes do you fly in that? Uh, mostly long-haul international, all over the world, the major financial centers and capitals of the world. Uh, earlier, as we were uh, finishing up our pancakes, you were talking about the uh, the differences in flying the triple seven versus the c5a galaxy maybe you could uh, tell our listeners again kind of what those differences are 
Sure. The main one is uh, technology. The 777 is a fly-by-wire airplane. Uh, you move the yoke, and uh, the flight control computers do their thing, and they move the airplane uh, very, very precisely and accurately, whereas the C-5 uh, has got 200-and-something feet of cable running behind it, and uh, they all were a little bit different. Some of them had more slop in it than others, and uh, depending on which tail number you were flying, it was always a little bit different. But uh, the uh, 777's much more responsive airplane. The C-5 was much heavier in, uh, in roll and in pitch. So the C-5 was really fly-by-wire, too, but the wires were connected to the controls. Exactly. That's the, that was the joke that we used to say, too. It's a fly-by-wire also. Pilots will know the answer to this question, but for, for those listening maybe who are not pilots, uh, sometimes you'll hear people wonder about how someone who flies in the Air Force and then uh, after the Air Force flies a 777 large commercial aircraft, how does that compare to flying a general aviation aircraft? Is, is the th- what is the thrill that passes through all those? Uh, it, it is. It was a, a boyhood dream, and I started off getting my private license uh, before I went to pilot training in the Air Force. So I've kind of come full circle back around uh, after I became a 777 pilot and had the financial means and listening to you guys and uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast was the other one. Um, Uh, I decided to get back into it, and the freedom of just being able to fly when you want, where you want, how you want, uh, and be able to pick up and go to an event like this on a Sunday morning, uh, especially in the United States without having to get permissions or a file a flight plan, or, or, you know, it's, it's a fantastic freedom, and it's just a thrill to be able to do it. And this is just the start of your flying weekend. Yes, I'm continuing uh, further up to Maine to see an old Air Force buddy of mine, and then uh, I'll turn around and fly back to New Jersey uh, tomorrow sometime. So let me ask you this. You've heard us for I don't know how many years now raving about this event. And then last year, speaking of raving, Max did come and he raved about it as well. So we're here now and I'm looking at the line for the pancakes. It's the longest I have ever seen it. Um, What are your impressions having arrived, only heard all the raving? Did, Did anything we say actually hold true? Well, so far, I've only uh, ops tested the pancakes, and uh, those have uh, proven to uh, meet the hype, uh, maybe even exceed it. They were amazing. And, and now I want to get out and look at some airplanes, and it looks like there's quite a few more people in planes here than I was thinking there were going to be. It's just a beautiful day, and I think other people had the same idea. J.D., thank you so much for flying up. And, and I also got to tell our listeners, how would we find out J.D. was coming? He sent me a tweet saying, look out for this airplane, and we did, and we saw it, and so glad to have you here. Thanks, J.D. Have a great day. You guys, too. Thanks for interviewing me. It was really nice to meet J.D., and uh, as with uh, all of the interviews, we have some photos, again, in the show notes, so be sure to check that out at airplanegeeks.com. You can see the Cardinal, you see J.D., uh, JD uh, as, as well as the others we talked with. And I got to tell you, the Cardinal lived up to all its hype, too. I've never seen one before, only heard about it. That beautiful cantilevered wing without any struts so you can climb in and out and those big doors. And I think there's more room in the Cardinal than there is in the 182 in both the front and back seat. It's just beautiful. And David, maybe you might. One of the things J.D. said is that he's wanted to go to the helicopter museum. And one of the first questions he asked me is, did you go down with your friend like you talked about on the show? And I told him, no, we couldn't have to cancel it. But uh, he said, well, look, the next time you're in New Jersey, call me. And if I'm off, I'm going to come up to the Greenwood Lake Airport, pick you up in the Cardinal. We'll fly right down and we'll all visit David together. So you might be running into us at some time or another, David. That's excellent. David's on mute. No, I'm just being quiet. (laughs) 
<laughs> hey, I wanted to comment about the uh, the pancakes. What is it about pilots and pancakes? You know, growing up as a kid, the two were always just kind of linked together in my mind. And talking about it right now, I can taste them. <laughs> now, now, oddly, here on the West Coast, we just don't see as many pancake breakfasts. Uh, back east, they seem to be far more prevalent. And I miss them. Ah, yes, I would miss them if I didn't have the opportunity. But uh, these, uh, we talk about these pancakes, and we keep talking about them. But, you know, fresh Maine blueberries, uh, nice oh. Maine maple syrup. And stop, stop. I You're think making me hungry. <laughs> I, I think the batter contained just a touch of vanilla extract, perhaps, or something like that, just to I give agree. them some, yeah, a little bit of extra, whoa, this is really nice, not really nice. Can you do a soft field landing in, 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 in the Cirrus Max? Can Maybe you can fly over next time. <laughs> oh, I did realize it was a grass uh, strip. Yeah. Boy, um, so I guess we're going to have to spin off yet another podcast. There are so many shows that have spun off from this podcast, probably at least a half a dozen. We're now going to have the, uh, I don't know, the, the food connoisseur <laughs> show uh, talking about pancakes and vanilla extract and other delicacies. Yeah, yeah. That'd be worthwhile. That, <laughs> after all, you've got the Eat at the Airport website. So, There's a start. Right. Exactly. Av geeks eating together. Ah, that's it. On the grass strip question, uh, Max, I was going to ask you, actually, have you ever landed on a, on a grass strip? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, first time I landed on grass was probably at my home airport because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> interestingly, you know, and, and it, was, it was on purpose, by the way, just to let you know. Okay, yeah, I was wondering where that was going. <laughs> so my, uh, my instructor, who also ran the airport and, you know, owned the airplanes and mowed the grass and you know, everything at, up in Wellsboro, he would land his airplanes on the grass parallel to the runway simply because he was trying to increase the life of his tires. And when I brought my girlfriend home from college, who's my now wife, and she had her uh, go up for a flight with him. Two of us sat in the back. As he's landing on the grass, she's thinking, we're going to die. We're missing the runway. <laughs> and of course, I was sitting there calmly going, of course, he's landing on the grass. He's trying to save his tires. Wow. Wow. Is there much difference other than tire wear between landing on grass and landing on asphalt? Yeah, mostly in terms of takeoff and landing distances. Your takeoff distances are going to be longer. Your landing distances are going to be shorter. And then, of course, uh, the the rest of it just depends on how smooth the you know the dirt is beneath the the grass, so you can get a lot more bumping around. And you know, if you've got really tall long grass, man, that's going to really yeah. increase the uh, you know the, the distances. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, Max, I was going to ask you one of the things we saw a few of there that I had noticed a couple of times, but you don't see too often are I think what they're called tundra tires. Uh, those big, large balloon tires, uh, and, and, and they're just amazing to see, and I know they're very, very expensive. Is there a real difference when you're landing or taking off with those? Have you fl ever flown them? You know, I haven't flown on them, but I can tell you they seem to be increasingly popular. I would say in, in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a, a huge growth in interest in backcountry flying. And so you see a lot more airplanes which are equipped with those tires and a lot more pilots who are heading out to uh, small remote uh, strips and planes like that these days. So, yeah, that's, that's a growth segment within the industry. Hmm. Yeah, and there were quite a few of them there, Micah. You're, you're right. I did notice that. Uh, but one aircraft we saw with uh, pretty small tires was the uh, Sonics of Mike Smith, who came last year and came again uh, this year. And so we talked to him for just a just a little bit. Here we are at Spurwink Farm again, 
And again, for the second year in a row, we are here with Mike Smith and his beautiful Sonics. Mike, I guess Spurwing Farm must have made a little bit of an impression on you last year. Oh, absolutely. This is uh, so much fun. So many different aircraft, uh, short field grass, so it's really fun to watch people uh, slip in and uh, make these short landings. And, and the people here are just, you know, fantastic. It's, everybody's your friend. You just walk around, you say hi to somebody, and you'll start a conversation. It really is amazing. I imagine it's very much like uh, how they describe Oshkosh. You meet someone, and and it's it, like you said, instant friends. It's uh, we haven't seen each other since since last year at this time, but you know, it's like it's old buddies reunited. Yep, old times. Yeah, you come for the airplanes, you stay for the people, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, tell me, how was the flight? You came up from Stowe, Massachusetts. How long did it take you, and how was it today? Oh, absolutely gorgeous blue skies, no bumps in the sky. It took me about an hour to fly up here. At about 5,500 feet, and just absolutely gorgeous. Well, you've got a gorgeous airplane for it, too, and uh, that home-built, and, and, you know, the propellers are still bent on it. <laughs> yeah, Prince Pita, people do ask me if I had a prop strike, and I said, no, they're, they're made that way. Well, so glad to see you again this year. Really, really happy you made it, and, and thanks for bringing that gorgeous airplane. Well, you're welcome. Good to see you and Max and Linda. That Sonics is pretty cool looking, I tell you. It's tiny. You know, I, I again, I, I might be able to fly it if I were a pilot, but I'd never fit in next to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that company is extremely well known. They're based in Oshkosh or very, very close to that. And the uh, you know, the family has run the company for years. Uh, tragically, uh, the CEO, Jeremy, who was a younger fellow, uh, died in a crash uh, couple of years ago. Um, and, of course, what's really interesting they're doing these days are the Sonic Jets. And they just introduced a, a two-seat version of the Sonics jet. The problem they'd had in the past was with a one-seat jet, there was nothing for them to train pilots in. And so they used to use a glider that was sat down low to the runway, kind of the similar height as the Sonics jet. But now with the, the two-passenger version, they'll be able to train people in that uh, before they actually jump into the single-seat version the first time. <laughs> Very nice. And, uh, yeah, Mike's is, is really beautiful, really, really nicely done. Another guy that we uh, that we know that we caught up with was Bill Barry. He's of course the former NASA chief historian. He's been on on the podcast many many times, and so we had an opportunity to catch up with Bill. Okay. Bill Barry is here. Bill, it's good to see you again. The last time I saw you was in uh, upstate New York. Was it really at a little glider event? Oh yeah, up at um, up at Elmira last year, right? That's right. That's right. But we're, here we are at Spurwing Farms for the fly-in and pancake breakfast. Did you get your uh, pancakes yet? Oh yeah, and they were great. Real, real Maine blueberries and real maple syrup. Wonderful. There he goes. That was Sean Moody taking off, a former candidate for governor who we interviewed last year. But uh, Bill, I don't think I've seen you for three or four years since Washington D.C. And I was thinking it was probably Red Robin the last time we saw each other. Was, uh... yeah. But I, but you know, I figured since I called you out by name on the show, <laughs> it was important to to talk with you. And and what I really want is, you know, uh, we've been raving about this for years. You've heard us raving about it. You said you wanted to come. What are your impressions? What do you think? Oh man, it's awesome. Pancakes. They're great. <laughs> so food's always a good thing. But what an amazing display of, of points. I mean, there are so many you know, points. I'm surprised now they managed to squeeze them all in here. And a uh, great bunch of folks. I'm bumping into people that, that I sort of know or should know. And, and it's a lot of fun. 
The variety of airplanes here is is kind of amazing. Uh, I mean, you have everything from the, the Sonics. Mike's brought his Mike brought his Sonics up. Um, he's parked next to a Stearman. Um, we have a variety of planes here. Some seaplanes, just everything. The the variety is just amazing. And we're standing in front of an autogyro. That's right. Yeah, yeah, autogyros. I got to go up in an autogyro someday. I think. Have you ever flown in an autogyro? Never in, nope, never been in an autogyro. So It'd be a new one for me too. So, yeah, the crowd is big. There's a big turnout, and it's a spectacular day. It really is amazing. I, I've been here for three or four years. I don't think I've seen this many people attending, and I'm so glad because EAA Chapter 141 really deserves it. They do a great job. Yeah, they're pretty well organized there, too. I mean, the, the pancake breakfast thing was smooth. Uh, they've got the CAP out here managing the crowd to keep them off the runway because you're like, like, we're standing here right on the runway. Yeah. And feet away. Walk, walk 15 feet over that way, I would have got my hair cut just then. So. That's right, that's right. That's one of the things that some of my friends have said, is that they can't believe how close you can get to the airplanes and how close you can get to the runway. And how I describe it, and what people don't understand, this isn't an air show. This is a fly-in. This is an, a, just an event for people to hang out together and visit. And so you can get close to the airplanes. You can walk next to the runway. And so it's real personable. That's a great point, Mike. A, a fly-in is significantly different than an air show. It's great to see the number of uh, children here. There are lots and lots of kids here looking at the planes, asking questions, even touching the planes. And uh, I, I think this is where, you know, you generate interest in, in the young folks. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of pilots who are sort of, you know, taking kids over their, the planes, opening the door and, you know, pointing out things to the kids and stuff. And, and uh, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of thing. And if you're not into airplanes, there appears to be an antique car show right over here behind us. So um, I haven't even gotten over there yet. But You're right. I didn't see those. <laughs> is, is that an MG I see over there maybe and uh, some other classic cars? Fantastic. I'll have to go take a look at that. Jennifer, did you bring Margie here, your MG? Did you not tell me you were coming? That would be something, wouldn't it? That would be something. Well, it's a, it's a great day. Glad you're uh, you're able to come. Uh, are, are you glad that Mike is Shane be into it finally? Yeah, finally, finally. Actually, I think he's shamed a couple of people because I've run into a couple of people who are you know airplane geeks uh, listeners who flew in or, or came in. So that's right, quite a few people. That, uh, we love to see it. We love to support events like this and to help draw you know the crowd where where we can. And I've got to tell you, Max, and I'm going to say this on the air, although you can cut it out if you want to later. The, the wonderful event, Innovations in Flight, that we used to attend all the time has changed. And we're not being able to do what we used to do. And I think in the future, if that continues the way that it has, we should change this to the Airplane Geeks annual meetup event because it's the kind of thing where we can really hang out and hang out together for the whole day or for the morning. And then we can go off and do what we need to do in the afternoon. Perfect for kids. You can see the beach down there. You got the antique cars and you got all these beautiful airplanes. So why don't we say instead of at Passover Seder next year in Jerusalem, let's say next year at Spurwink Farm. This is certainly a great event, and, and the, the venue is just spectacular. As you said, Mike, uh, we actually walked down by the uh, t- towards the ocean uh, last night, and uh, it's just a, a great place to hang out and everything. So speaking of hanging out, Bill, uh, how are you enjoying retirement? Oh, it's great. <laughs> no more meetings all day long. I mean, particularly during the, the pandemic. I mean, we were, like, online on you know, Zoom meetings. We were using a different platform, but uh, we were on video meetings like uh, for like seven hours a day. It was just 
it just was draining. So, so I was very happy to leave all that behind, and uh, and I go fly gliders when I feel like it, and uh, and uh, come up and do things like this once in a while. Actually, I'm. I saw you at Elmira last summer. This is the first time I've actually done an overnight away from home since then. So, so only for airplanes. Only for airplanes. All for airplanes. All right. Well, Bill Barry, thanks so much. Great to see you again. You left as being the chief NASA historian, and now you're just a gentleman pilot. There we go. <laughs> thanks again. It's always great to see Bill. It was, and you know, he uh, he flew in, or rather drove from uh, where he lives out in western Massachusetts to Portsmouth and uh, spent the night with an old uh, pilot buddy he used to fly KC-135s with, and then they drove up uh, that next day and, and met us, and it was so great to see him, and uh, congratulations to you on your retirement, Bill. You, you're looking good. Yeah, he is, yeah. Well, re- I think retirement helps people look good because, you know, you don't have that stress of uh, of work. We really had the privilege and honor of uh, speaking with Mary Lou Sprague. Now, the Sprague family owns the Spurwink Farm, and she tells us how she and her late husband, uh, Phineas, goes by Finn or went by Finn, uh, got together with EAA Chapter 141 and how the airstrip came about because of potatoes. Spurwink Farm is uh, owned, operated by the Sprague family. And we have here Mary Lou, who uh, we're very, very happy to see and is kind of responsible for making this wonderful event happen each year. Actually, it's the uh, experimental aircraft people who are responsible for this. I I remember Finn had an Aronka champ, and he decided that that was an airplane and he wasn't didn't really think he wanted to keep anymore. So he called up the experimental aircraft people and asked if they would like his Ronka champ. And that's how we all met. And so uh, the experimental aircraft 141 took Finn's uh, uh, airplane and we just uh, have been friends ever since. It's been very nice. The turnout is just spectacular today. Of course, it's a beautiful day. The weather's perfect, but there are so many people here. It must make you feel very happy to see all these people. It's absolutely wonderful, and I'm sure that up above all that clouds, which there aren't any, Finn saying, just come and have a good time. And people are having a good time. And you, and you know what? A lot of people are bringing their children with them, which is really wonderful. Yes, and then hopefully we will be able to get some of our children flying, get them interested in it. They have to... The problem is the kids have so many things they're doing now. And it's always... In, in, in short uh, time, and they come to Maine in two weeks, and they're not going to learn how to fly in two weeks. You know, it's it's... It's too bad. But we'll work on it. We'll get them going and sticking to it. That's right. We keep trying. You know, one of my favorite memories of coming here, and I've only been coming for three or four years, but it was the last fly-in where your wonderful late husband attended and our friend, a friend of the podcast who lives here, 
flew in in his helicopter in R44. And I remember that uh, your husband came down on his on his chair and said he had never flown in a helicopter. So Ernie, our friend, said, well, we have to change that. And he gave him a ride, and Ernie was never happier to be able to do that and said that, that your husband enjoyed it. Do you remember that, and do you remember yes, what he course. said? I have a picture of it in the back of the uh, helicopter, and he was thrilled. He was just thrilled. He loved to go up, and we would go up and fly together in his little airplanes, and we'd go to see our friends along the coast, and we'd stop in Friendship, and we'd stop in Camden, and we'd stop and spy on our pals. It was fun. It was fun. How long ago did you guys decide that you were going to turn this into, I mean, it's a pasture, but turn it into an airfield so you could fly in and out. What made you decide to do that? We didn't decide to do it, but we decided that nobody would uh, uh, desecrate the airfield. It was, Wainwright had this airfield, and he was raising potatoes on the farm. Some of them he raised here, some of them he raised over on Richmond Island, and some of them, I think, it was up in China, Maine, and he had an airstrip there. So uh, Wainwright built this airstrip so he could get around to all the different places he went. And he, what he did is he uh, raised these potatoes, and the ones that he didn't um, uh, sell in Maine, he took down to Florida, and he sold in Florida, and then he would... Uh, bring citrus fruit back to Maine again on on the return trip. So this airstrip was really built by Mr. Wainwright, and Finn was very uh, protective of this field. He didn't want anyone to get on it and spoil it. And he, I only remember him once being cross because a lady was here with her horse, uh, doing circles and he said that is not acceptable that is an airstrip you do not ride a horse on my airstrip <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can see that would be a problem well, Mary Lou I want to thank you for talking with us and I've also got to say that since Finn flew west he's obviously been looking down on us and said the weather's going to be perfect because since he's gone it's been a perfect day every single time so I want to so I want to thank you, and I want to thank Finn, and I want to say God bless him. Thank all the sprays, all the family. Thank you. A really delightful lady, Micah. She really, really is, and uh, so generous to uh, to do this for EAA Chapter 141 every year. And the other thing that she does is that real name maple syrup, she donates that every year. She's the one that goes out and buys that and donates it to, uh, to, to the chapter for the breakfast each year. And the other thing that I only just realized as part of the new Aviation Gourmet podcast— um, <laughs> She meant, you know, she talked about potatoes and how it used to be a potato farm. And obviously there was real Maine maple syrup there. There were real Maine blueberries there. That's three out of the four things that Maine's known for in terms of in, in terms of eating. There's no lobster, but we get that there, and then we're covered. Yeah. Well, number number four is Micah, right? So there, you've got four out of four. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. 
Hey, and so you mentioned that it was a potato farm in the past. Is it still a working farm? And if so, what what do they farm these days besides airplanes? Horses. Yeah, it's a ho- it's a horse farm, right? There's lots of um, I don't know, stables, I guess you call them. Horses and cows. And cows. Yes, we'll uh, we'll we'll mention the cows in just a second because they're kind of well, kind of interesting too. But when you drive up, as I did and as Micah did. Um, yeah, you you go past the horse, some of the horses, and they're in different pastures, you know, throughout the the parking area where they have all the uh, attendees park. It's a pasture for the uh, horses, and uh, so it's an absolute working farm. Just really beautiful. And even along the strip, sometimes I mean, it, it's such a working farm that uh, you sometimes have to watch where you step. It's just oh, yes. one of those things, you know. Um, it's all fine, you know, and, and, and it happens. But yeah, it's uh, it's a regular farm, and it's a beautiful farm. And again, uh, the Sprague's and uh, and Mary Lou have always been very, very generous, and Mary Lou continues to be, and has told uh, Chapter One Forty One, told Bunk Chase that as long as she's there, the event will continue. Yeah. All right. So uh, finally, Mike and I got together afterwards and kind of uh, uh, wrapped it up, put our thoughts of the day together. And here is that. Here we are at Spurwink Farm. It's the end of the day. It's about 1230 in the afternoon, and it feels like it's been way too long, but way too short all at once. Max, what do you think about this year? It's your second time. Oh, another great year. Another good reason to come back next year for visit number three for me. Yeah, I don't know what the numbers are, but uh, there sure were a lot of planes here today. There sure were a lot of uh, people here. As we mentioned earlier, I think a lot of youngsters as well, which is great. But it's been a fantastic day. I talked to Bunk about it, and he said it's not the most number of planes you've ever had. I think there were 65 or 68 aircraft, but it was the most number of people. And what was amazing to see, and I'd never seen it before, there was a line to get pancakes all the way outside of the hangar and all the way around the side, and people just waiting. It was a huge crowd, and everybody just looked so happy. They did. Nobody was disappointed, I think, in waiting that long for the pancakes that were delicious, especially with the main blueberries and the main maple syrup. So uh, it was uh, it was great. It was a long line, but worth it. And people had a terrific time. You know, and the other thing that was just wonderful is we had three airplane regular airplane geek listeners come up just for this event. We interviewed them all. You, you, you've heard them already, probably. It was, you know, Bill Barry was here. He was a regular guest on the show and a good friend of the show. Thank you, Bill, for coming up after me calling you out on the show. Glad you finally made it, and I hope you'll be back. And then there was J.D. Goldstein, who flew in that beautiful cardinal, and I had always wanted to see a cardinal. And boy, when he reminded me that there's no strut, that it's a cantilever wing, I looked at it and I go, yeah, that's why I love it so much. And then, of course, Mike Smith came up again with his Sonics, and so great to see them. And the other thing that I personally loved about it was that you know, you've heard me rave about it on the show for years, but I have friends that aren't airplane geeks, and I'll tell you, they don't listen to the show, but they've heard me raving about this event for years, too. I had five non-airplane geek friends show up who had a wonderful time and couldn't believe the beautiful location and couldn't believe the gorgeous airplanes and how close they could get. And even they were commenting about how it's amazing to be able to see the aircraft. It's so different from a normal, what people call an air show. And we also got an opportunity to 
uh, introduced the Airplane Geeks podcast to to many people. And I, I think we weren't, uh, you know, overly marketing ourselves or anything, but people would come up and notice the T-shirt logo or the pins or something and ask about Airplane Geeks. And so we had an opportunity to, to tell folks some, some things about what we're all about. And so that was kind of nice, too. And if you were here and you're listening to this, thanks for listening, thanks for being here, and thanks for being a, a new listener. And you know what? We've kind of talked about this, you and I, a little bit, and I've mentioned it, and I'm going to mention it here on the air. But I think this event takes place every year on the Sunday after Independence Day, the 4th of July. There's no set date. It's always that Sunday, though, because that date will change. And I think this would be a wonderful annual Airplane Geeks get-together. If you can get here, you should get here. And it would be wonderful to see you. And what's nice about it is that, yeah, it doesn't start until 8. I was here at 7.15. You spent the night. It's over by 11, and here it is noon. So you can have the morning, have your pancakes, and then head out to the beach or see other parts of Maine. So even if you're bringing kids, they're not going to get bored because they're not there for that long. And how could you get bored in an event like this? There really are lots of things to see and do in, in Maine. That's true in this area as well. So it, it's pretty handy to you know, work this event into a, a larger vacation plan, perhaps. In my case, you know, we came up just for the day, for the event, basically. And that's great. But like you say, uh, being a, a morning event, you have the afternoon to travel if you need to or to head out towards other destinations in the area. So it works very well for that. And bear in mind, on our main license plates, it does say vacation land. It is. It very much so is. Well, Mike, I think most of the folks have uh, departed. We we watched a lot of the planes uh, depart. That's always fun. Of course, you need to get here early in the morning so that you can see them arrive as well. That way you get both, uh, both angles. So we really had a terrific time. Max, so glad you came. It was wonderful to spend some time with you. And, uh, well, we'll be in touch online. All right, Micah. Hey, you guys are great together. I'm just sitting here smiling and thinking, what next? And I think it's going to be the Macy's Day Parade in New York. (laughs) I mean, the way you're just kind of selling whatever else there is to do there and what time to come and this. and I mean, you guys sound like you should be sitting there in New York City. I don't know. I don't know what kind of salespeople you are. Are you coming next year, Max? Yeah, I plan to. (laughs) That's pretty... I was talking to Trescott. (laughs) Oh, well... It's pretty funny. You said you'd be done by noon. I thought, oh, well, that's great. That gives me the day and a half I need to get back home after. Yeah. <laughs> Long haul from here. You know, Micah, one of the things that you mentioned that, that struck me was that uh, people who are not um, airplane geeks, people who are not enthusiasts or, or in the business can get a lot out of an event like this. Uh, you had some friends come. I also have a, a good, as you know, I have a good friend lives in Maine. And she came with part of her family. And they're not airplane people at all. Um, but they had a wonderful time. It's it's such a unique experience. Uh, and I think it's a great way to, to spark an interest in aviation nonetheless. But, you know, these are, these are folks that have never been that close to an airplane or never talked to a pilot, um, never had any questions answered by someone who, uh, who understood aviation. And uh, they had a great time as well. We have to mention the cows, though. I always have to mention the cows. I think I, these are the cows. I always called them Oreo cows because they have, their the front end is black, the back end is black, and sort of a ring of, of white in the in the middle. 
And I, I think we talked about this last episode or something, and I said, I didn't know what they were called. And I think it was Brian who looked it up and said they were yep. Lakenvelter cattle, sometimes called a Dutch belted cow. But I got a message from Bill Barry who thought that maybe those were belted Galloways. So I think those are different. I think Lakenvelter cattle are different than belted Galloways, perhaps. Yeah, the belted Galloways uh, come from Scotland. I looked this up, and the the the, the Lakenvelters are, are are Dutch. But I think, first of all, they're Oreo cows, as far as I'm concerned. And if they're <laughs> Oreo cows, then be you know, because Oreos obviously, why would they be Oreo cows? Because cows give milk, and Oreos go great with milk. And <laughs> And, and and if that's the case, then I'm pretty sure they're Lakenvelder cow, cows or Lakenvelder cattle and being Dutch cattle. And why is that? Because do you want Scottish chocolate on your Oreo or do you want Dutch chocolate making your <laughs> Oreo? I think they're Lakenvelders. I, I think you two are way out of your depth at this point. We that are. are. That are you're mired deep in some cow piles. That's all yeah. I can say. Usually say I'm full of horse something. Someone knows the answer to this. Maybe they can, uh, they can help us out. Anyway, um, great – Great event. Uh, had a blast. Highly recommend it. And, you know, another thing that occurred to me is sort of the difference between air shows and fly-ins and all of these. They, they, they really are a different flavor, I guess you could, you could say. Um, you know, you go to an air show and it's one kind of an event. And if you've been to air shows, you, you know, you know what that is. You sit out in the hot sun all day long. You know, you, you watch all, all the acts. You know, maybe you get to walk around and visit the static uh, static displays and things. Uh, but a fly-in like this, I don't know, uh, I find it much more kind of interactive, you know, with uh, with the people, most of whom you've never met before. But it's a different experience. An air show is like going to a play or to a film. It's entertainment. And it's wonderful. I mean, I have a great time going to an air show, and it's something I enjoy. But a fly-in is going to a social event and it's getting a chance to meet people and speak with people. And uh, again, a, a good example is, is our interview with, that we did with, uh, with, with, with Doug. You know, we, we didn't know who he was. We didn't know he was coming. We never met him before until all of a sudden, you know, he was sitting next to us having pancakes. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing you get at a fly-in, which I think is similar to what you probably find at, at Oshkosh and, and Sun and Fun, except those are more commercial. This is a totally non-commercial, just fun event for people to get together and talk aviation, even if you're not into aviation, like our friends who showed up were. And some of my friends already put it on the calendar for next year. They liked it so much. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. Uh, Micah, you have an item here. Well, one of the uh, other things that happened at the, at the fly-in is uh, one of our guests from episode 516 a long time ago happened to show up. That was Greg Jolda, who's the uh, director of the uh, University of Maine Augusta uh, Aviation Program. And he told us about an event that they're having uh, up at their uh, hangar at the at Brunswick Landing. And uh, they are announcing the fact that they have a new tool they just acquired for the aviation program, a Cirrus SR-20GS. And a uh, so that, 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to ask you a question about it sometime soon. Yeah, they've acquired a Cirrus SR20GS, and they're using it for pilot training. And uh, it's going to be a major event. I think the governor is going to be there and uh, uh, perhaps a senator or two. And, uh, and he's invited me along to come cover it. So I'll bring my microphone and see what we can come up with. But uh, what I'm curious about... Uh, Max, is what you can tell me about the SR20GS, what I should ask about it, why they might have chosen it, and uh, and what's the difference between that and the 22? Well, first of all, I'm not aware of there being a GS version. I'm thinking that you're talking about the G6 version. Is okay. this a, a very new state-of-the-art plane like within the last couple of years, or do they buy something? Uh, I, I'm guessing they bought a new aircraft. Is that true? I don't know yet. All right. If they bought a new aircraft, then it's definitely a G6. Uh, I don't think there ever was a, a GS. Uh, but the G6 is really cool. Uh, that was the model they started in 2017. They switched engines. It's got the Lycoming engine, It's uh, which is unusual. All the other Cirruses have Continentals. 215 horsepower. I had two flights in one today. And at about 4,500 feet, we were booked booking along at uh, about 145 knots true, something like that. So it, it moves along uh, you know, pretty fast, uh, and it's got just about everything built in it that is available in any uh, small aircraft. So just think of it as being the fully loaded, all options, uh, lots of goodies in the panel, uh, you know, a state-of-the-art autopilot. Uh, they've got, of course, the parachute. Uh, they've got the a level button on the autopilot, which is a great kind of get out of jail free card. If you find yourself, you know, it has some weird attitude, boom, you just push that button and probably about five seconds later, you're back you know, straight and level. So yeah, it's very much a state of the art airplane. That's great to hear. Yeah. And I just looked at the uh, press release. They, they Maybe it's a typo because it says GS, but uh, they must have meant G6. Well, and maybe there's a special version for universities. Uh, I know that they have come out with versions in the past that are for high-volume training facilities. I just don't remember the, the GS uh, designation. And the, the difference with those airplanes is usually they've got uh, more tough interior materials. So instead of, you know, the nice fancy interior, they've got materials that are going to be more durable because, you know, those airplanes may be up three, four times a day and they just don't want the things to wear out. So there is a, a special version for universities and high volume flight schools. Well, and the other thing is, when we saw Greg, when we had him on the show, he had promised me, I've, I've never had a flight in a Cirrus yet, and he promised me one, and that was three years ago, and uh, he, I told him I was holding him to it, and he said he was going to take care of that. Now, I don't know when, but hopefully it'll happen, and then I can ask you all sorts of questions, Max. Yeah, and you also ask about the 22, which is by far the more popular model that has uh, about a 310 horsepower uh, engine in it. It's about 30 knots faster. You know, it does about 175 to, to 180. And then there are all kinds of flavors of that, including turbocharged versions, which go all the way up to uh, 25,000 feet, uh, versions that have anti-icing capability, the so-called uh, TKS system, which is the weeping wing that puts a glycolic fluid out on the wing to prevent uh, icing. So that's really the uh, the get-up-and-go, top-of-the-line, want-to-go-somewhere kind of airplane, the traveling machine. And which one are you flying most of the time? I do more work in the 20s simply because I'm doing a lot of training with people, and it's less expensive for them to learn to fly in a 20 than a 22, or if they're working on an instrument rating, it's cheaper for them to do it in the 20, and everything they've learned applies equally well to the, the 22. So I do a lot of work in 
those airplanes as well as the uh, the Vision Jet. I've got a Vision Jet job coming up next weekend, uh, so that'll be fun. Great. Also, Mike, uh, we have a, an item here from NPR, which I didn't realize until I clicked on this that there's a familiar voice in this. What a surprise it was when I turned on the radio last night to listen to All Things Considered Sunday night, and there was our good friend, Benet Wilson. Yes, yes. So we'll have a link to this. It's uh, use these tips to keep your time at the airport as easy as possible. So Benet's being interviewed here. Yeah, and it's it's a short piece. I think it's I think it runs around three minutes. Um, but we'll have that in the show notes. So yeah, longtime listeners, of course, know uh, our Aunt Benet, who um, hasn't been on the show for uh, kind of a while. We should probably fix that. Uh, but uh, you know, long long time participant in in this show, so it was kind of cool to hear her friendly voice in this NPR piece. So we'll have that in the show notes. And she's writing for the Points Guy now, and does a great job. I always love reading what she has to say. Yes. All right. Anything, David, going on that uh, you mean to talk about it? No, just quiet week. Quiet week. Next week will be our. Um our first book series. So if you go back and check the show notes from last week, you'll see that there's a special offer for geek listeners for $25 memberships for the year for at the museum. And you'll get access to all of our book clubs um, coming up as well as the eight speaker Star Trek series. So if you're a Star Trek fan, that's coming up also. Um, so that's pretty much it. It's been fairly quiet. I'm just hoping to get over, I guess, what I what what I would call a head cold. <laughs> and, 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 and but you know, the 95 degree heat for the rest of the week will probably take care of it. At least I'll determine I won't have a fever. Yeah, for sure. David, I've never been so happy to hear someone has a head cold because it's <laughs> just a head cold. Yeah, yeah. All right, Max Trescott, anything? Uh... Oh, yeah. I'm just going to come up here and do my mea culpa. I went searched online. Wouldn't you know, there is a Cirrus SR20GS. Oh. So I, I, have, I have failed. I apologize. Uh, though I will say in my own defense, nobody calls it that. <laughs> <laughs> so it did say that uh, there is a version that's just a base white, you know, no fancy colors. And I couldn't tell from the, the notes whether this is an earlier version that was all white or a new version that's all white. I suspect that uh, nomenclature is for an old older version of the airplane, but I don't know for sure. But, yep, guess there is a, an SR-20GS. You learn something new every day. Cool. That's that's what we're all about, right? <laughs> Indeed. Something new every day. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We, we really appreciate it. Thanks for those who have uh, contributed, donated uh, financially. That really helps us out with our expenses. Really appreciate that. And you can find us, as always, at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode uh, are at airplanegeeks.com slash 708. And we have a lot of photos from the uh, Spurwink event on the webpage there, so be sure to check those out. Of course, you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, where do we find you online? 
Well, let me just first mention that Aviation News Talk episode 240 will be out this week with Dr. Victor Vogel, who's talking about the many different illusions that sometimes conspire to kill pilots. So I would encourage any pilot to come brush up on their illusions because that's an area that, frankly, I think you know, pilots kind of learn briefly for their check ride, but then don't do much review on it. So anyway, someday I'm going to have to, to tell Dr. Vogel that I think he must be an illusionist, right? Because he was talking about, about illusions. But anyway, folks can always find me at aviationnewstalk.com and just click on contact at the top of the page. All right. David Vanderhoof, where do we find the American Helicopter Museum? Um, well, you can – the easiest way would be go to the website, which is um, – AmericanHelicopter.museum, or you can um, just reach out to me on social media, or or you can also don't forget join our Slack team, um, our weekly pancake breakfast or daily pancake breakfast for listeners, and you do that by sending us an email to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com, and we'll send you an invite. Um, so other than that, you'll will see me on Thursdays on. If we record this week, we are um, on the UAV Digest with that guy Max Flight. Yes, I'll be here this week, David. So yeah, we can we can do a show. And how about you, Micah? Well, you can find me along with former associate producer Brian Coleman on the journeyisthereward.org, where we talk about Brian's trying, uh, trying to get his lifetime 1K status with United. We're going to be recording episode 15 sometime soon. And then if you want to reach me directly, the best way is to reach out to me on Twitter. And my ID there is Maine, like the state, M-A-I-N-E, fly, F-L-Y. That's at Maine Fly on Twitter. Very good. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. Next week, we're scheduled to have a guest that I think you're going to find fairly interesting, someone who's got a, well, rather unique perspective uh, on uh, on aviation and on uh, some things that happen sometimes. So we'll leave that little teaser. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. See you all soon. And thanks for listening.